There had to be a strong motivation. You pay me up or else. It could be one of two things, total incompetence, or there can be an element of corruption. The murder, the robbery, for whatever their motivation was, if he did have a debt and he needed to pay it back. That will not be discussed in this house. He absolutely became sure at the mention of the Carbon murder. There were things that were just best left buried. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 12. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. William Clark tried and failed to kill his girlfriend, Mary Branch. Mary confided in Francis Gregory and said that if she found that Clark had been seeing another woman, Edith Small, behind her back, she would tell everything she knew to the police. Days later, Clark drove Mary to a desolate gristmill bridge and tossed her over the side into the Patapsco River. William Clark was sentenced to eight years in the Maryland State Penitentiary for attempted murder. For reasons known only to Mary Branch, she took him back. From his prison cell, Clark and Mary exchanged love letters on an almost daily basis. According to police psychologist Dr. Jory Crosen, their relationship was predicated on mutual dependency and manipulation. Clark needed Mary to secure him a new attorney and help with various tasks from the outside. Mary knew everything that Clark had done and used that to hold sway over him while still heavily depending on him and feeling safe and secure enough while he was behind bars. Let me take a pause right here. I have to keep reminding myself that you're hearing this for the first time and all of these names and situations can get confusing. I get it. There's a lot to process, but here's some good news. At this point, my investigation is going to start linking the people involved in the car barn murders. So to avoid me having to remind you over and over again about who's who, here's a quick summary to refresh your memory. More names will come into the story as I move forward, but these are the main people to keep on the front burner. Emery Smith and James Mitchell, the victims. William Clark, my primary suspect. Robert Janney and Walter Oliver, his accomplices. Those are the three men I suspect to be directly involved in the robbery and murders. Francis Gregory. He was found on a bench in the trainman's room on the morning of the murders. James Weir, William Clark's friend and alibi. Mary Branch, William Clark's girlfriend. She survived an attempted murder by Clark. Edith Small, Clark's other girlfriend. Ernest Brown, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Superintendent. Melvin Hazen, the D.C. Commission President. The district metro police detectives that were involved in the investigation were Frank Brass, Robert Barrett, and Richard McCarty. The Montgomery County detectives who had the lead were Theodore Volton, Leroy Rogers, and James McAuliffe. The Baltimore detective was Stuart Deal. He wrote the reports that were found and delivered to me halfway through my investigation. Remembering those names will help you keep things straight. Okay, moving on. 
William Clark continued to write to various people from his prison cell, including his friends with political and monetary influence. In a letter dated February 16, 1936, Clark sent a letter to Mary Branch and told her to call Carter Glass's office and find out where one of his contacts was living and to send Clark the address. I found out that Carter Glass was a United States Senator. He was also the chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee and a segregationist from Virginia. How would a two-bit criminal like William Clark have access to a United States Senator and think that anyone of that caliber would step in on his behalf? I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C., and at no point did I or anyone I knew have a direct contact with a politician of that caliber. There's no mention of Senator Carter Glass in any other letters, so Clark's request must have fallen by the wayside, but it still piqued my curiosity as to how William Clark knew the name of anyone associated with a United States senator. William Clark wrote to several other people as well, trying to get money, cigarettes, and help to get out of prison wherever he could find it. One of his letters was addressed to Neva Berardinelli. She turned out to be James Weir's sister. James Weir was Clark's friend, who allegedly went to the Gaiety Theater with Clark and Mary Branch on the Sunday night before the murders. Weir was also arrested with Clark for a robbery in October of 1934. Weir's sister, Neva Berardinelli, was married and had just opened the Modern School of Beauty, employing their two sisters, Nettie and Sally. According to William Clark's police interview, he offhandedly mentioned that James Weir had a half-interest in the Shingle Shop Beauty Parlor. Clark's other girlfriend, Edith Small, was a beautician at Landsberg's department store. What was with all these beauty parlors and the people associated with this case? Recalling William Clark's statement to D.C. Detective Frank Brass on the day of the murders, Clark said that he went to James Weir's apartment on Sunday night and he told Weir's sister that he was going to a show at the Gaiety Theater. That was likely either Sally or Nettie, since phone records from 1935 showed that they were living with James Weir on Harvard Street. Neva Berardinelli lived with her husband, Edward, just down the street. James Weir, his sisters, and his parents were all living together at 1411 Harvard Street. So if everyone was together in the same place and Clark knew that address, why would William Clark write to Neva Berardinelli instead of writing directly to his friend, James Weir? The most obvious reason is that James Weir had been implicated with Clark in a robbery, and Weir had been questioned by the police after the car barn murders, even though his interview totaled two short sentences. Maybe it was safer for William Clark to write to Weir's sister, Neva, but it wouldn't have mattered even if William Clark had written to James Weir directly, because James Weir no longer lived on Harvard Street by June of 1935. During the time of Clark's trial and sentence to prison for the attempted murder of Mary Branch, James Weir high-tailed it out of Dodge. On June 11, 1935, James Weir abruptly joined the Marines and was sent to Paris Island for boot camp James Weir was eventually stationed in Peiping, China. Well, he couldn't have gone further away from Washington, D.C. than that. 
It sure seemed like a hasty decision, and it made me wonder what the motivating factor was to make him vamoose out of D.C. during the same week that William Clark was sentenced for attempted murder. James Weir half-owned the shingle shop hair salon that, by all accounts, was doing just fine. He left the hair salon and his entire family behind to suddenly join the military. Was James Weir running from the law? Or was he running from William Clark? I found another interview in the new stack of files that might add a little bit of clarity about James Weir. Weir had a friend in town on the weekend of the car barn murders, and this man was also taken to the police station to be questioned. His name was Joseph Goddard. Here's what Goddard's statement said. January 22nd, Joseph G. Goddard, age 21, Williamson, North Carolina. We arrested this man as a suspect in murder case at 1 a.m. January 22nd. He was sleeping in the same room with James Weir at 1411 Harvard Street, apartment number one. In his room, we also found a Western Electric telephone in Goddard's grip, and he claims he got it from James Weir. He states that he arrived here from Williamson January 15th, driving a Dodge sedan. We questioned him along the time of the murder, and he states that he arrived home Sunday, January 20th, about 10.30 p.m., and James came in about 11.15 p.m., and the next morning he claims he took Nettie and Sally to work about 8.45 a.m., and then he took James to the shingle shop on F Street. He arrived there about 9.05 a.m., and then took James to the scissor sharpener in front of the city library. Joseph Goddard substantiated the fact that James Weir was home by 11.15 p.m. on Sunday night, January 20th. The note that the detectives made about a Western electric telephone in Goddard's bag was a little odd. There was only one reason for Goddard to have a phone, especially a Western electric. It was part of the teleflash system used for the horse racing wire racket. Instead of being used for person-to-person calls like a normal phone, these were part of a radio broadcast system to commercial businesses. They acted like a shortwave radio, and it was a provider of horse racing results and odds to taverns, bars, and bookie joints. It was a major source of revenue to the phone companies who were paid off to keep it quiet. I detailed one case earlier with a deal between the phone company, the newspaper, and the district attorney's office, The phone company promised to cut the lines in order to avoid criminal charges or fines. On that note, remember the letter that Robert Janney wrote to his friend, Nolia Foreman? Nolia's husband, Gilbert, worked at the horse track, and he was friends with Walter Oliver and Horace Davis, the jail informant. It sounded to me like James Weir had a hand in the horse racing wire racket, and William Clark admitted to frequenting the racetrack too. The horse track and the wire racket seemed like a common thread between Robert Janney, Walter Oliver, and William Clark. To summarize my recent findings, James Weir left the shingle shop hair salon and his family behind and was off with the Marines. His sister, Neva Berardinelli, opened the modern school of beauty. Edith Small worked at Landsberg's beauty shop. By the fall of 1935, William Clark and Robert Janney were in prison together. By February of 1936, Robert Janney's daughter, Josephine, had been placed in the Kelso Home Orphanage and was no longer living with Lillian Janney, who dropped off the radar completely after getting threats from an unknown man. 
William Clark's wife, Viola, and their three children had moved out of his parents' house but were still keeping in close contact. Mary Branch was still recovering from her injuries and moving from place to place. At one point, Mary moved in with Clark's sister, Helen, and ran a rooming house for an elderly lady. Mary Branch confided in Frances Gregory about Clark's planning of holdups and said that if she found that Clark had been seeing Edith Small behind her back, she would tell everything she knew to the police. A few days later, Clark tried to kill her. Francis Gregory gave a rambling statement to the detectives, and his final words were that he thought Clark could have been in on the car barn job. The detectives also suspected Clark was involved, but for some reason, there was zero follow-up investigation on him, or on Robert Chaney, or on Walter Oliver. As I was putting all of this together and assembling the links between all of these people, I went back and read the checklist of random notes apparently made by Detective Volton. They said that William Clark and Edith Small paid $28 for furniture and that Edith had gone to the prison to visit Clark. A subsequent note stated that Clark and Edith had also put $500 down on a house in Chevy Chase. William Clark had 500 bucks for a deposit on a house? He didn't pay alimony to Viola. He didn't support his children. Mary Branch had been financially floating him. He sold his Capital Transit uniform for cash, and he didn't have a job. Where, oh where, did William Clark get $500? William Clark's interview with police ended up having a lot more clues in it than I thought. If you need to go back and hear the whole thing for yourself, it's in episode 9. The detectives asked Clark if he had a car, and he said that he loaned it to a friend, Frank Schuerman, on January 3rd, two and a half weeks before the robbery and murders. That was a lie. Clark didn't loan it to Schuerman. Clark owed Schuerman $165 and gave him the car as collateral. Clark told Schuerman that the banknote was only $300. Schuerman figured the car was worth $450 to $500, and it would be a good way to finally get paid, since Clark had already written him several bad checks. Frank Schuerman found out that there was $650 due on that car, so it was already $350 in hock from a previous loan that Clark had taken out on it. In addition to calling William Clark a crooked sucker... Frank Schuerman also told the detectives that on the Tuesday or Wednesday, the week before the murders, William Clark came to his house in Baltimore at 1.30 in the morning, along with three other men. One of them was Clark's cousin, Benny Johnson, to strong-arm Schuerman to give that car back. Schuerman said he didn't have it, and it was up in the country. Clark and the others acted like heavies and pressed him. Clark told Schuerman that he desperately needed that car back. Schuerman told them he didn't have it. They eventually left without the car, but Mr. Schuerman gladly showed Detective Volton that he had it hidden in a private garage. Volton let Schuerman keep it. William Clark was in serious debt. He owed Frank Schuerman $165, and gave him a car that was 350 bucks in arrears as collateral that he tried to get back five or six days before the murders. Mary Branch said that Clark had been in trouble for failing to pay alimony to Viola. 
Mary also said she paid for the taxi to the Gaiety Theater, paid for Clark's ticket, had paid money on that car at Schuerman's, and had been feeding Clark and gave him a place to stay at her apartment. Holy shit. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Who else did William Clark owe money to? Were his visits to the horse track the source of his financial mess? Did William Clark have a gambling problem? It's time for some deductive reasoning and links using the information from earlier episodes. If you've been following along closely, you'll make the connections. Link number one. William Clark didn't have access to a car on the night of the murders. It was at Frank Schuerman's. If Clark, Mary Branch, and James Weir really did go to the Gaiety Theater on Sunday night, they took a taxi. Let's go back to eyewitness Ernest Carter, the man who was interviewed by Detective Jack Toomey back in 1977. Ernest Carter said that he was waiting at Dan's hot dog stand across the street from the Chevy Chase Lake ticket office when he heard shouting and gunshots and saw two men run out of the office and get into a green Buick, which went northbound on Connecticut Avenue. A green Buick was the only stolen car that was never recovered during the time of the murders. It was stolen from the area of 15th and Irving Streets in D.C. at around 10 o'clock on Sunday night. About that location. I've done geographic profiling on this case to place specific people and events at certain places all across the district. It gave me a visual map to reference, and the first thing I saw was the proximity of the stolen Green Buick's location to the apartments of William Clark and James Weir. It was only two blocks away. Clark didn't have a car. The stolen Buick was within walking distance from Girard Street and Harvard Street. That car was never recovered. Link number two, Dan's hot dog stand. One of the transit company employees, W.C. Moore, told Detective Volton that he saw Mildred Oliver, the wife of Walter Oliver's cousin Douglas that helped to run the speakeasy downtown. She was hanging out at Dan's hot dog stand in the fall of 1934. William Clark was working at Chevy Chase Lake as a conductor at that time, which means that Clark and Walter Oliver likely did know each other and Mildred Oliver was there to see Clark. I think there was a lot more going on at Dan's hot dog stand than just slinging weenies, mustard, and relish, but I'll get back to that later. That's just another link in the chain between Clark, Janney, and Oliver. Link number three. On that same page of random notes I've been referencing, there was a mention about a man named Swales. William Clark pawned a watch from the Hot Shops robbery to this man, Swales. The notes also said that William Clark stopped at a cut-rate gas station at 4th and N Streets Northwest to see this man, Swales, on the night he took Mary Branch for a ride to the bridge at Ilchester. Swales had come to see Clark several times at Chevy Chase Lake during the month he worked for Capital Transit. Swales was a black man who lived in the area of 4th and N Streets. That gave me just enough information to research. His full name was John Swales, and he lived at 412 N Street Northwest. He was a taxi driver and a mechanic. Follow me here. When William Clark got back to the apartment on Gerard Street after his attempted murder of Mary Branch, a taxi driver was contacted by Benny Johnson 
to deliver the news about Mary's survival. Would Benny Johnson trust just any random taxi driver to relay such an important message? Benny Johnson went with William Clark to Frank Schuerman's to try to strong-arm his car back, and Johnson was the contact to get that urgent message to Clark, so obviously they were pretty close as cousins. Could the taxi driver, who Benny Johnson entrusted with that information, have been Clark's associate, John Swales? Why would William Clark stop to see him at a gas station on the night he took Mary Branch out to kill her? This was by far the most frustrating part of my investigation. I was still left with more questions than answers, even though I had three really strong suspects. Probable cause wasn't going to be enough to close this case, and I knew that. I needed more. I needed beyond a reasonable doubt, a pretty pink bow, and I was stuck. I spent six months, 10 to 12 hours a day, every single day, going through all of these documents, researching every person named in the file, finding links between them, their addresses, their histories, newspaper articles that mentioned them and their crimes or their social acquaintances, anything I could dig up to try to put this case to bed once and for all. But I kept coming up short. There was a major link I was missing, and I had no idea what or who it was. By 1938, the car barn case was shelved, and I thought forgotten, until I had a chat with Jack Toomey. During one of our conversations, Jack offhandedly asked me if I had the 1954 addendum that Detective Volton had written. Uh, no, I sure don't. There was no report from 1954 in the paperwork I received from Montgomery County, so Jack emailed me a copy from his files. The 1954 addendum was only two and a half pages long, written by Captain Volton, and another page was written by Inspector James McAuliffe. In the 20 years since the car barn murders, both of them had moved quite high up in the ranks of the Montgomery County Police Department. I had to read this new report four or five times to believe what I was seeing. I tossed the pages on my desk and I went outside to think about it, what it meant, and how I was going to find the people named and not named in Captain Volton's words. There was a point in this investigation where I thought I might have enough circumstantial evidence against William Clark, Robert Janney, and Walter Oliver to close the case, but I was wrong. There was so much more to this story, and honestly, I was just getting started. Again. Jack Toomey loves to tell stories about his time on the street in Montgomery County, and we've had a lot of fun trading cop speak, stuff that only other officers would really understand. But one story that he told me hit me sideways because I couldn't understand the motivation behind it. And frankly, Jack didn't understand it either when it happened. Here's Jack's story. In 1985, the department decided to publish a yearbook about the 75th anniversary of the department or something. And uh, another detective and I were assigned to locate as many old-timers as we could, you know, old-time officers as we could. One day, we made an appointment with Colonel McAuliffe, who had been retired now 14 years or so. And we went to his house, and we talked about old time and when he came on and all they had was motorcycles and how they got their calls from a blinking red light that was posted on telephone poles in various parts of the county and 
I then switched gears and asked him about the car barn case because I knew he had a lot to do with it. He said, that will not be discussed in this house. He absolutely became furious and upset at the mention of the car barn murder case. I didn't dare ask him why he was so upset and let it drop. And I, to this day, do not know why. James McAuliffe, Theodore Volton, and Leroy Rogers had busted their asses for two years trying to solve the Carbarn case. That was obvious. What also became obvious to me is that I think they could have solved it back in 1936, but why didn't they? Inspector McAuliffe, or as he preferred to be called, Colonel McAuliffe, got incensed at the mention of the Carbarn case with no explanation as to why. There had to be a really good reason for him to get that angry when a case was simply brought up as a subject to include in a retrospective book about the Montgomery County Police Department. Anyone who's worked enough hard cases has some emotions left over. God, I did an entire first season about it. But never would I forbid a case from simply being mentioned in my presence, no matter how badly I felt about it. Something really got under McAuliffe's skin about these murders. I think the 1954 addendum has the answers. Captain Volton retired in 1947, but the Carbarn case never left his mind, and he kept in contact with his friends who were still on the department. He also kept in contact with his confidential informants, CIs that aren't mentioned anywhere in the original case file. In 1954, Volton came out of retirement when one of his informants contacted him out of the blue. In his follow-up report from that year, he began it by writing this. August 31, 1954. Additional information in reference to the two murders that occurred at Chevy Chase Lake Car Barn on January 21, 1935. The following information was received from a strictly confidential source for Captain Theodore Volton, retired, of the Montgomery County Police Department. The source of this information can never be disclosed and will not be divulged under any circumstances. Volton's informant must have provided some really credible information for him to put that caveat in his report. There is so much new information to unpack in this addendum, I'm going to take it step by step, starting in 1938, when I thought the case had been shelved for good. The Carbarn case was still being worked sporadically at that point, and D.C. detectives Frank Brass, Richard McCarty, and Robert Barrett were the points of contact in the district and were assigned to help Volton, Rogers, and McAuliffe with those angles. Frank Brass had done numerous interviews during the first part of the investigation, including William Clark, Mary Branch, and Francis Gregory. Robert Barrett and Richard McCarty stayed in the background, and they weren't mentioned very often in the case notes from 1935 and 36. But Richard McCarty's name was all over the 1954 report, so apparently he'd been more involved back then than I originally thought. By 1954, Robert Barrett had retired after becoming the superintendent of the District Metro Police. Barrett's tenure as chief was filled with corruption. This is directly from the D.C. Metro Police official website, quote, 
Superintendent Barrett and the police department became the focus of wide-ranging investigations into gambling kickbacks and narcotics dealings. Superintendent Barrett became the focal point of that investigation, and after complaining of poor health, he was retired in 1951. His life outside of the department was filled with speculation as he neglected to appear to testify to the commission, and when he did appear, he refused to answer any questions. However, he remained under suspicion and in 1957 was indicted for federal income tax evasion. Just like Superintendent Ernest Brown before him and Commission President Melvin Hazen, Robert Barrett refused to answer any questions from Congress about corruption, kickbacks, and the dirty deals going on in the district. Robert Barrett died in 1966. His obituary read, A 26-year veteran of the police department, the controversial figure retired as chief in 1951 while an investigation of his finances was underway by a Senate crime committee. As corrupt as Robert Barrett was, his co-worker Richard McCarty's involvement in the Carbarn case was more important for my investigation. According to Volton's 1954 addendum, Richard McCarty had been promoted to captain on the D.C. police force. Volton recalled that McCarty was a detective sergeant in 1935, assigned to the number 10 precinct with Frank Brass. According to the addendum, Richard McCarty provided crucial information about the Carbarn case three years after the murders in 1938. McCarty told Volton that he did an independent investigation on William Clark in 1935. Inside of either a garage or the basement of Clark's apartment on Gerard Street, Richard McCarty found a bottle of anesthesia. This was news to me and to Volton, apparently, and it was nowhere to be found in the 1935 or 36 file. The only information in the original notes was a quick one-off that said they searched Clark's apartment after he waltzed into police headquarters and nothing was found. Apparently, that wasn't true. Richard McCarty found a bottle of anesthesia and Volton hadn't been notified about it until 1938. The report continued and said that McCarty reasoned back in 1935, when he found this evidence and never reported it, that William Clark could have knocked Mary Branch out before committing the robbery and murders and returned to the apartment before she woke up. Richard McCarty also suspected William Clark, but he never said anything. Okay. Toxicology was not my strong suit in grad school, so I needed an expert on this because even though it seemed like a ridiculous notion that Clark could have had some kind of bottle of anesthesia, which to me meant chloroform, but that Mary Branch would have stayed unconscious for six or seven hours. Then again, Clark did try to kill her in a really cruel and horrible way. For an explanation, I called my previous professor, Dr. Oliver Grundman, the man who patiently walked me through forensic toxicology at the University of Florida. Oliver Grundman, I am associate professor at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy. When we find a bottle of anesthesia in 1935, 
you gave me a couple of different options of what that might be. You really wanted to debunk this whole Hollywood mess that, you know, you put this cloth over somebody's face and they automatically pass out, uh, and it doesn't really work that way. So can you talk about that and debunk sort of the Hollywood stories that we've all seen over and over again? Yeah, certainly. So there are basically four stages of anesthesia that we kind of can define. And the first one is kind of the sedative stage where folks are feeling kind of dizzy and feeling sedated, but not really pass out entirely. So they don't lose consciousness. The second stage is actually where somebody loses consciousness, but the autonomous nervous system gets activated and people might throw up. People, uh, the, the muscles might actually fight getting sedated and losing muscle control. Uh, and that's kind of the stage that we want to pass as quickly as possible with modern anesthetics. So we want to get to the third stage and that anesthetic stage itself where we have muscle paralysis, where consciousness is lost. That is the stage where we still have relative good control over breathing, the cardiovascular system is stable and where the patient can be relatively well controlled. And then the fourth stage is where we actually lose control of breathing, where the breathing becomes very shallow and where the cardiovascular system often collapses or where we often experience very low heart rate and where the patient may be at risk of becoming very arrhythmic, for example, and, and where we might lose the patient. So that, that is the stage that we want to avoid. Now, when we talk about, for example, these inhalable anesthetics that were used back in the 1930s, diethyl ether, chloroform, and the like, these agents require a very high concentration. So just using a handkerchief or something like that and dumping chloroform over it and putting it over one's nose and mouth, you need a very high concentration, a very high saturation in the air in order for somebody to breathe it in consistently and get them through that second stage where they resist and where they fight it to the third stage where they actually lose consciousness and really slump down. And that will usually take about 10 minutes or so if you really consistently have that high concentration. So you really need to soak a handkerchief or, or something like that in that anesthetic. So it, it's really complicated to achieve that. Even if William Clark was able to get Mary Branch into this third stage that you're talking about of unconsciousness, how long would that last? If we talk about chloroform or diethyl ether, the common ether, unless you maintain the rack over the mouth and you, again, maintain a very high concentration, it would not last very long. It would last maybe 10, 15 minutes, I would say, at most. So all of the Hollywood scenes we've watched and Richard McCarty's anesthesia theory are out the door. But that doesn't explain why McCarty never reported this evidence to Volton in 1935, and Volton made a note about it in his 1954 addendum. It is suggested that the investigators on this case get a complete report from now Captain McCarty, Detective Bureau, Washington Police Department. And now I have to air out a mistake of my own. Sometimes you can't see the forest through the trees when things get overwhelming. Somehow, during my multiple readings of the 1935 case file, I missed a critical piece of the puzzle. I thought I had taken notes on this particular page, 
and apparently I flipped past it a bunch of times. I actually had overlooked it. But thank God, I finally realized my stupid, stupid mistake. Captain McCarty had a habit of either not reporting evidence or not collecting it and turning it in. On another random list of follow-up tasks, Richard McCarty's name was mentioned. And when I finally saw it, I wanted to spit nails. The note read, Get gun taken of Clark's, taken by McCarty from taxi driver named Williams. Get info from McCarty, R.E. bloody clothes Clark was wearing. Are you fucking kidding me? If you have information about the car barn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. <laughs>